Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Elkhorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to Ivy League Murders and Hauntingly Yours and Hauntingly Harvard. We hope you're feeling spooky today on Ivy League Murders because we have a very special guest today, DC O'Rourke from the podcast Hauntingly Yours. How are you doing, DC? I'm feeling pretty spooky. How about you? <laughs> Perfect. Well, it's funny. We're in New England and all the leaves are starting to change and the pumpkins are out on the sand and it's a oh, yeah. nip in the air. So I'm feeling I'm feeling Halloween. How about you, Laura? Uh, yeah, I, I am. And I'm extremely excited to hear some spooky stories. Yeah, there we go. I wanted to ask you, DC, just about yeah. your background. What kind of got you interested in the you know, paranormal? Oh, how do I make a long story very short? Um, let's see. I guess let me start with the beginning and go from there. My grandfather died two days before my 13th birthday, which was very sad. He and I were very close. The day after we buried him, I had a strange dream where I awoke in a white room and he was all the way at the other end sitting in a white chair wearing a white suit. The lights in the room were very bright and he beckoned me over to him and he said, I never got a chance to say goodbye, but I wanted you to know how much I love you and I hope you have a nice life. Wow. And the crazy thing was my grandmother said the last thing he said before he had a heart attack was, did you get a chance to see Denny today? So I kind of put two and two together and went, he actually reached out to me while he was in the process of passing on. And from there, that just kind of prompted my overall interest in ghosts and the paranormal. And I, before you know it, I was on my own adventure doing amateur paranormal investigating, going around to haunted places. And I ended up becoming a ghost storyteller on top of that because I was telling of all my personal experiences. And then investigators are asking me to take them to these places since I knew them like the back of my hand. And then from there, I became a ghost tour guide, which I've been doing for the last five years now in Williamsburg, Virginia, leading tour groups around Colonial Williams to historic haunted sites, telling them about the history and the spooky stories. You guys have some pretty good ghosts down there, I hear. Virginia is full of ghosts. I always joke with people, wherever you find history, you're bound to bump into at least a couple of ghosts. No doubt about it. I was telling Sarah, you kind of educated me a little. You use all that paranormal equipment. Oh, yes. I mean most of us people are not familiar with. Maybe you could tell us a little about that. Every investigator is different. My 
Arsenal is definitely low on the totem pole compared to some people I know with all their fancy cameras and light grids and stuff. I have a spirit box which acts as a communication device of sorts, scans radio frequencies in your local area, and creates white noise which allows spirits to speak through, if they're able to do so, of course, because not all of them actually have the energy levels that some do. That's my favorite, by the way. I love that. And then there are EMF meters which detect electromagnetic fields. It gets kind of tricky with those because you can pick up like underground electrical wires and things like that. So you have to really find a stable area. For example, tonight I'll be going to do a ghost tour and I will be placing it at this one house on top of a trash barrel that's directly in front of the house because I know there's nothing else around that can interfere with it. So therefore, if a ghost should come out and try to make contact with me, this thing will start lighting up, which it often does. So these devices, basically, they detect changes in energy. Sure. It's just a way to help us document proof of paranormal activity. Okay. Yeah, but all the while, I mean, we're still scientifically trying to debunk, okay, that was more than just the reflection of Joe Schmo's camera. There's actually somebody in the window that we've actually seen who isn't actually there and so on and so forth. Fascinating. So last week, Laura and I took you into a little bit of the history of the Widener Library and its genesis. So in episode one of the Widener, we talked a bit about the Widener Pearls. We really didn't talk about this in episode one, but the story of Eleanor Widener's Saving the Pearls was not exactly the movie ending of the movie Titanic. (laughs) Right, yeah. The Widener has had a reputation of being haunted. And DC, I think you've done some research into what happens when things are moved around at the Widener. And can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I'll just, I'll start at the beginning. So from what I've discovered back in the early 2000s, the Widener apparently was under a five-year restoration project during one phase of the $90 million undertaking, by the way. Wow. Harry Widener's belongings and books were removed from the memorial room to allow space for the research services and reference staff. From there, things started to happen that a lot of people couldn't explain. One former staff member actually recalls an unexplainable presence that was felt in the room no sooner they had moved in. The once handsome facade of Widener had been taken down for cleaning and an all too ugly piece of plywood had been hung in its place. There was something that didn't sit right with her about it. It just felt off. On a few different occasions, staff members would be seated at the table, busily working, when a chair would just slide out as if someone were taking a seat nearby. Unfortunately, there was no one ever there, so naturally it kind of spooked them. Eventually, things progressed to light bulbs burning out at random, knocking sounds from within the walls at odd hours. The overwhelming scent of ladies' perfume when you're in the room, completely and utterly alone. From there, another former staff member claimed that one day there was a few of them working in the memorial room when a huge piece of plaster fell from the ceiling onto their table. They all stopped what they were doing, looked up at the ceiling, 
out of nowhere came another piece of plaster as it crashed onto the table. This just plain and simple terrified them, of course. They tried collecting their things as more pieces of plaster began to rain down upon them. It was unsafe. Who could blame them, you know? Instead, they got to safety and just watched as the entire table became consumed by a giant cloud of plaster. By the end of it, they could only surmise that it was the ghost of Eleanor Widener who was furious over the fact that Harry's portrait had been removed from the memorial room. I have to say I'm inclined to believe this. If there any way for a ghost to be in this room, I think it would be Eleanor Weiner. Casting aside the fact that the room is supposed to be for Harry's ghost to return, if he should be inclined to do so. And her presence looms largely over the Widener. I mean, she had a lot of control in the Exactly. Widener. Right, right. That would make sense. And I think she's, yeah. she seems like she had a very strong personality and a very strong will as well. I'd agree with that 100%. Yes, indeed. But yeah, that's pretty much it in terms of the hauntings there. The staff pretty much said after renovations were done, they didn't really experience anything else. Interesting. So do you think part of her ire was the fact that things were moved around and she did not like that, basically? I would say so, given the history and what we know of how the building came to be and all of her eccentric specifications, don't do this, do this. I think it's just a mother looking out for her son's best interest. She's trying to protect this shrine, basically, that she's had developed for her son, because at least to me, that's what it is. And, and as we know, she had in her will very specifically said, do not make any changes. Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. Leave Widener alone. Yes. Leave, leave, <laughs> leave Harry alone. Leave, leave Harry, Harry alone. alone. Yeah. And you also did some investigation into other buildings around Harvard that have had some paranormal activity. Can you speak to that a little bit? I certainly did. So normally what I like to do when I'm researching buildings is, particularly at a college campus, I like to go through and find the oldest buildings on campus because, in my opinion, I think those usually have the more interesting ghost stories. So the first one that I dove into, I guess you could say, was Massachusetts Hall. That's actually the oldest building on campus, in case you didn't know. Yes, that's right. It, isn't it? It's like 1718 or 1720. Like it was built between those two years, I believe. Yeah. And Unfortunately, historians know- can't make up their mind. <laughs> <laughs> and um, maybe that was the duration of time that it took to build it. But my freshman dorm, D.C., was literally like in Stoughton was like literally four buildings down from Mass Hall, which is not no great. I mean, the Harvard Yard is not huge or anything. Laura and I both walked past Mass Hall probably hundreds of times, if not. Right. May have passed out on the stairs of Mass Hall. (laughs) (laughs) No judgment. No judgment. Mass Hall has little over 300 years of history. In my opinion, it is truly a testament to time. Fun fact, the oldest college building in the United States is actually the Christopher Wren building at the College of William and Mary, which is about 30 minutes from where I live in Wayneburg, Virginia. I'll actually be in that neighborhood later on tonight. This was thanks to the efforts of President John Leverett and his predecessor, Benjamin Wadsworth. The building contained 32 chambers and 64 studies for the 64 students. 
that it needed to house in the very beginning. Construction happened with funds from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which would equal roughly around $570,000 today. From the outside, the structure has really changed very little since its creation. Apparently, a gigantic clock was added to the West End somewhere around 1725. Some decorative ironwork was also later removed in the 1800s. In terms of the interior, well, the buildings evolved beautifully with the university. What began as an answer to the issue of student overcrowding has been repurposed consistently ever since. The building has been used as military barracks, lecture halls, reading rooms, lab space, and most recently as offices for the president, provost, general counsel, vice presidents, and different support staff on the first two floors with a proctor up on the third. The top floor is roughly home to around 14 students, a mix of young men and women from all over the country. So there's a lot going on here, it looks like. While it may seem odd to house students right above the university's high-level administrators, the students don't seem to mind. The co-ed mini-dorm is actually rather charming, from what I understand. The former abundance of fireplaces has since been boarded up. The once wooden floors have been replaced with carpet. From what the students say, however, the rooms are bright with plenty of space. They love the historic feel the place has to it. I can probably appreciate that fact. The rooms are furnished on top of that. What more could you possibly ask for, really? How about a resident ghost? Should we go there? Yes, please. <laughs> People have been avoiding that topic at Mass Hall, but there is at least one ghost that likes to come back from time to time, every year, to be specific, around autumn. The administration team seems to think that he is revisiting his old stomping grounds. Former freshman dean William Young used to be a bit of an expert of Harvard lore and embraced the many spirits that dwelled here. One particular day back in 1967, Young and one of his advisees were busy planning for something when they encountered a mysterious older gentleman in the B entryway. Neither one of them had seen the gentleman before, but he was dressed in wingtip shoes and a tweed jacket. Everything about him was very, how shall I put this, ivy. They ignored him and went back to their office when just a few minutes later, a knock came at their door. Young opened the door to the office to find the older gentleman standing at the threshold. He introduced himself as Holbrook Smith and stated that he had once lived in the entryway and Senator Sultanstall was his roommate. The strange thing about this was that the senator was in the class of 1914 and furthermore, he had not lived in the entryway. Things started to get uncomfortable, but by the time Young decided to ask Holbrook to leave, he had just suddenly disappeared. As the time grew on, the freshman dean would encounter him numerous times. He just had this inexplicable ability to drop in and disappear as he pleased. Whenever he appeared, he just walked around the place as if it were old times. One day, the dean had the notion to ask Holbrook to leave as he came across him coming down from the fourth floor to the third. Holbrook just stared at him with these sad gray eyes and said, You have ruined everything. With that, he continued descending the stairs as he pushed past the dean. He didn't even bother to look back. Once he reached the bottom, the door never opened, and there was never any sound to imply that it had even shut. Holbrook Smith had vanished, and William Young was left with a lot of unanswered questions. The reason being this, according to Harvard records, Holbrook Smith did not exist.
Wow. So how about that? Interesting. Um, yeah. I'd be curious to have a run-in with this guy myself. <laughs> and I know you explored some other places at Harvard. I mean, it's pretty fascinating to us. And I think to probably, we have a lot of listeners from Cambridge and Harvard alumni. You know, these are places that we've walked by our whole lives and, and really are just learning about the history of, and it's all pretty fascinating. There's so much here. I feel like I can barely just skim the top of the service. I mean, we're talking about the oldest college institution in the United States, chartered in 1636, not 1638, like a lot of people tend to believe. We could probably spend an entire two hours talking about the history and all the ghost stories that go along with it. I either read or heard along the way, and I may even have heard from somebody who had lived in Mass Hall that it was haunted. It was just kind of like one of those known type of thing. So I've got to I've actually jog my memory and figure out who it was that told me that. I think someone did tell me. It, it was just kind of like this known, like, yeah, yeah, there's a ghost there. He's just mm -hmm. no big deal kind of thing. From my research that I've done, that seems to be the general consensus when it comes to the ghost stories of Harvard. It's like, that place don't, yeah, there's a ghost there. Eh, yeah, like I, feel like <laughs> I feel like they're pretty benign. I mean, yeah. you know, like at Harvard, I don't think there's any really... Like, they're nice ghosts. Yeah, they're so, nice, thoughtful, smart. You know, yeah, they're very, very <laughs> Right. Smart. It's not like you're dealing with something like the Amityville Horror House in New York. Right, right. They're just kind of maybe bored where they are, so they came back to just get a little bit of Harvard energy, I think. My college, <laughs> University of Miami, they'd be a little sketchier. <laughs> <laughs> So what's our next building that you looked at? Well, the next building I looked at is Wadsworth House, which is actually the second oldest building on campus. And there is actually a lot of really great history here. The house was built in 1726 for university president Benjamin Wadsworth. And later on, as the 13 colonies were in the midst of the American Revolution, General George Washington himself took control of the house and made it his headquarters. I know when I first read that, I said, wow, George mm -hmm. Washington at Harvard, very cool. It was from this house though, that Washington rode out to meet his troops on the Cambridge Common to prepare them for the battle ahead. Believe it or not, there is also historical documentation that shows that Washington entertained several notable guests in his time at Wadsworth House. Among them were Abigail Adams, wife to John Adams, and the future Massachusetts Speaker of the House, James Warren. Later down the road in 1849, President James Sparks made the decision that he liked his personal residence better, so he chose not to live in Wadsworth House. It was from that point on, no other presidents lived at the house, and over time it just became a place to board students and eventually administrative offices. People have argued over the years, of course, as to whether or not the place is haunted, much like any old building on campus, the skeptics battle it out. Here at Wadsworth, though, people claim to see things such as a mysterious man in a tricorn hat who comes and goes in all hours of the night. They can hear him cheering out on the lawn amongst several others, apparently. Sometimes the echoes of conversations can be heard in the house when no one else is around. It really makes you wonder, is anybody else at home? <laughs> it was many moons ago now, but there was a lovely cleaning woman who worked for Harvard. She always had the pleasure of being assigned the Wadsworth house on her rounds for the day. 
There was this one morning in particular where she entered the house and discovered that all was quiet, as it should be. Everything appeared to be a little more quiet than normal, but eh, she reminded herself to get to work. Maybe the students were still upstairs asleep. She had to consider that. She began her duties all the same. At one point, she was downstairs on the main floor, vacuuming the carpet near the entryway, when she heard a terrible commotion upstairs. She stopped what she was doing immediately and listened. It sounded as if two men were in a heated argument of some sort, at least a discussion. A door slammed shut very hard. Heavy footsteps were heard, and then before her appeared a fair-haired older gentleman dressed just like a soldier. He wore a black tricorn hat on his head, and his outfit was a beautiful blue color with gold trim all over the place. Her jaw dropped as she watched him march down the staircase right towards her. Moving out of the way so he could pass, the cleaning woman noticed he didn't even bother to use the door once he got to it. He simply walked right through it. Um, The poor cleaning woman fainted right there on the spot. I'm just going to stop there for a quick second because I, to me, I, I, I get this image in my head and hopefully you catch my drift here. The father of our country. Does that ring any bells? Yeah, no, George Washington, sure. I think about him with his hair pulled back and in the uniform. And I mean, it definitely sounds like a continental officer. George Washington, but I'll put my money on that. Do you know the year when she saw him or roughly like kind of was it? This? It was it was apparently several years ago. I couldn't find an exact date, though. But so. within the last 20, 30 years, you would say? Um, oh, yeah. Another fun fact is the only private residence that George Washington ever lived at was Longfellow's home, which is on Brattle Street in Cambridge. That's right. Yeah. So he apparently moved out of the Wadsworth house at Harvard and moved directly into that house. So he was looking for more of a permanent residence. And, and what else did you look into? Um, well, I actually have one more story from Wadsworth House, if you would like. Oh, yes. Great. Yeah. Uh, something spooky happened to a IT specialist. He was working late one evening in one of the offices uh, downstairs at Wadsworth House. He says it was winter time and there was a definite chill in the air. He was busy typing away, trying his hardest to send off an email that way he could go home for the night. Just as he got to the end of the email, though, and was about to hit send, the room temperature seemed to be getting very hot. He couldn't explain it. It was as if somebody just turned on the heat full blast. The specialist didn't understand. He looked all around the room, confused, and then he heard someone clear their throat. It came from behind him. Uh. A fearful chill naturally shot its way up his spine. The door actually was located just behind him and he had not even heard it open glancing at the clock on his laptop it said it was 9 p.m on the dot no one should have been there at that hour he turned around to see who was there but when he did he found absolutely no one at all they had just vanished in the back of his mind he wondered who it was because he felt their presence he heard them clear their throat obviously they were there So what exactly happened to him in this situation? He couldn't figure it out. No matter how many scenarios he played out in his head, he just couldn't get to the bottom of it. 
my question here is, did he experience one of the spirits of the Wadsworth house? Or was it just the inner workings of his own mind, which were trying to tell him, stop burning the midnight oil? Yeah, yeah. The former. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. And so, DC, you also told us that you did some research into the Holden Chapel as well. Honestly, this is my absolute favorite, just because there's there's so much good, juicy stuff that happened here. Here's what's interesting. From what I find out, back in 1999, there were some pretty heavy renovations being done to the basement of this building. One fine morning, some workers about had a heart attack when they discovered human bones buried within the walls. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Edgar Allan Poe. There we go. University anthropologists were more than thrilled about this. And soon enough, the archaeologists were brought in. Permission was given to dig. The renovations ended up being put on hold, of course. And there was an upcoming rehearsal space that was going to be built for choral groups. Now that would have to be put on hold as well. As it would turn out, there were several skeletons that had been sawed open and there were broken pieces of scientific glassware and test tubes thrown in amongst these remains. Some of the bones actually had metal pieces sticking out of them as if someone were trying to construct a skeleton, perhaps. Sounds pretty gruesome, right? Kind of Frankenstein-y. That's a great way of putting it. I never would have thought about that. While it may appear as such, there is a perfectly logical explanation, though. To better understand it, I think we should take a look at the history of the building. So if we go and sift through the soils of Harvard's past, we can really find some fascinating stuff. Like, you know, the, the bits of history we've just briefly talked about with George Washington. There's just a lot of information here that we can go over. But Holden Chapel actually finds its beginnings in 1746, which makes it the third oldest building on campus. It gets created thanks to the efforts of Thomas Hutchinson, class of 1727, who went to London in search of funds to create a place of worship for the men of Harvard. A charitable donation of 400 pounds was given by a Mrs. Holden, and before you know it, the chapel was being erected. Named for the generous woman, naturally, and they decided to even honor her further with placing her coat of arms on the gable of the building, which is still there today, so that actually might be a great way to identify it right there. I never knew that's what that was. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. In 1766, Holden Chapel lost its ecclesiastical status when Harvard Hall was built because the ground level of this building was suddenly designed the College Chapel. Three years later in 1769, Sir Francis Bernard declared that the building was to be the new meeting place for the house once the British arrived in town. Not too long after that, in 1775, the local militia seized the building during the American Revolution and used it as a utilities room, as well as a place to barrack troops for the Continental Army. Now, this next bit of information I find to be super interesting, and I hope you ladies do as well. In 1783, after years of sitting quietly in Harvard Yard deteriorating, A man by the name of Dr. Warren rescued the chapel and converted it into an amphitheater. The chapel had suddenly sprung to life again and was used as a lecture hall and a cadaver lab. The lectures at the lab were frequented by seniors with permission of their parents, 
and the payment of a fee. They lasted about two to three hours and focused on the examination of many kinds of human remains. I don't know about you, but I love reading about this kind of stuff. You know, my mind goes back and I think about like Edgar Allan Poe and yeah, like you were just saying, I mean, all that good gory stuff. Well, anywho, this all paints a very vivid picture, I think, in terms of the building, the history, what went on here. I actually remember reading an article, it was some years ago now, about how 13 bodies were discovered underneath the former home of Benjamin Franklin in France. A lot of people don't seem to know that small fact, but from what they discovered, he was actually using these bodies as cadavers to study human anatomy. So obviously this is what was going on with the bodies that they discovered back in 1999. Interesting. So they were using it either for anatomy studies and for dissection. Yep. You hit the nail on the head. Pretty fascinating. That's amazing. Yeah, it's super interesting stuff. I mean, you wouldn't think about something like that happening today, but that was actually pretty common 150, 200 years ago. They knew so little about human anatomy and about disease, and yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It really does. And here's something that might be up your alley. In 1849, Dr. George Parkman was murdered. We know the Parkman-Webster murder. Yeah, but yeah. the audience probably doesn't, so please go on. I am totally surprised that Hollywood hasn't made a movie about this because the, the facts of the case are just super interesting. I mean, it's so macabre. I love it to pieces, but why don't we start at the beginning? and take a look at it. So you got Dr. John Webster. He was a chemist who hailed from a well-to-do Boston family, had a laboratory in the basement of Holden Chapel. At some point, he borrowed money from a fellow named Dr. George Parkman. It would seem that Webster wasn't exactly great at keeping his promises because Parkman kept coming around and asking for the money that he was owed constantly. Can't stress that enough. Then one day, people started to notice that Parkman hadn't been seen in about five days. Parkman's loved ones actually went around put up flyers throughout Boston offering a reward to anyone that could help them find him. George Parkman was more than just a doctor. He was a bit of a a financial wizard also from what I uncovered. And he was in charge of the family trust. He had numerous real estate holdings. I mean, this guy was very well connected. The family grew increasingly worried about him, much like any family would, and they were starting to speculate, okay, maybe he became the victim of foul play. He was known to carry around large sums of money. What it all ended up boiling down to in the end, though, was a janitor named Ephraim Littlefield from the Harvard Medical School, who became suspicious right around the time Parkman went missing. He lived in the basement where Dr. Webster's laboratory was, and he took note of Webster acting strangely on more than one occasion, he says. Thanksgiving weekend, he broke into the laboratory and searched for clues that would help him with his suspicions. He ended up discovering a locked privy, which he pried open and discovered human ashes in the toilet bowl. There were also burnt bones and human teeth on the floor. He notified the police who were out dragging the Charles River in Boston Harbor looking for a body. The police had apparently discovered a bit of information that told them that Parkman and Webster had a meeting the same day that Parkman went missing. 
This naturally put them on Webster's trail. They arrived at the Holden Chapel. They searched the laboratory for more clues. They ended up discovering a locked trunk that contained arms and legs, uh-oh, as well as a furnace that contained more human remains. Exciting stuff, right? I don't want to go into too terribly much more detail, but just in case you ladies decide to investigate the case yourself. Oh, we, we, we're, we're planning to. We're planning to. I mean, one of the most fascinating things to me is, I, mean, I won't get too far into it, but Hawthorne was present at the trial. I mean, I think oh, wow. this was, this was uh, like the celebrity trial of the day during a really booming literary period. So Melville, Hawthorne, and, all... And, and not only that, it set an absolute precedent in court that you didn't have to have a full body in order to get a, a murder conviction. They found part of Parkman's jaw and they were able to link it to Ooh. him. It set up the... Forensically. It's forensically, just... you didn't have to have a corpus delecti, basically. It was also a really interesting time in Massachusetts because it was a time of great immigration from Ireland, but Cambridge kind of remained unchanged. I, I agree with you. I, I really don't know why Hollywood hasn't seen it on this case because they're both really fascinating characters and we, we are going to explore it, uh, I think, with a historian at some point. But And, and it's perfect for but Ivy League murders were all about like what drove Webster to make that fatal decision. You yeah, know what I mean, it's like yeah. that. that that's, that's our fascination on our show. And and thank you for keeping the murder in Ivy League murder here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this has been just fascinating. It, it I has, mean, but I, I have to ask you because I have to go back to ghosts and to go back to the paranormal. What the hell are they? I, I know enough credible people, such as yourself. So what are they? I think there are more than one answer here. Bit of a loaded question, I guess you could say, because if... <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. Without getting into a big, long discussion, there are multiple types of spirits. Um, it really depends on how the person comes back in terms of their overall energy field. Are they an orb? Are they an apparition? Are they kind of somewhere in the middle where they're more like an ectoplasm type deal where they're trying to figure out how to make that transition to where they can be a full-fledged apparition and walk around like they would have in life. But sometimes they're just not able to do a whole lot. It's unfortunate, but it is what it is. And I've been discovering that a lot recently with using the spirit box at certain locations, ha having conversations with spirits. I was doing an investigation a few nights ago and a young man that was with me started asking the spirit, so, hey, blow out the candle. Hey, light up the EMF meter. Hey, do this. Hey, do that. And finally, a male spirit answered and he said, we're dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him, I said, how many times do I have to tell you? Be respectful. They're not here to perform magic tricks. I mean, a lot of them, they can't manipulate objects you know it's hard enough for them to speak so we should respect them and be honored that they're actually taking the time and the the energy to actually try and communicate no matter how little it may seem and dc can we ask you to just tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast because you have a really fabulous podcast and a lot of our listeners don't know about it so maybe 
they could tune in. So could you tell us a little bit about Hauntingly Yours? Yeah, so Hauntingly Yours, I actually kind of put all of my skills to the test from being a paranormal investigator to a ghost storyteller to a ghost tour guide. And I just take stories and locations all from all across the globe, no matter where it is. And I present the history, the the folklore, the the true strange tales mm-hmm. that people have been passing down over the course of time. And you get to listen to it and use your imagination and feel like you're there. It's yeah. really fun. It's we, great. We've I, had some great road trips listening to your, your podcast. I have to tell you, it's been a lot of fun. It went with three teen girls and they were like, can we listen to another one? Yeah. Can we listen to another yes. one? They're yes. like, so happy we're not listening to true crime. Yeah. Really, you're a great storyteller and yeah. it, it's just, you have like a soothing voice. It's, it's really, really, really enjoyable. And this has just been fabulous having you on and really learning more. You know, to us, it goes deeper because it's our hometown history. So it's just really fascinating to learn so much about it. And I just can't wait till Harvard opens up again because now I want to go back into these buildings me, and like me too. I was really just, experience them differently. I was just going to say that it's like you've taken us inside these buildings and I feel like that history, that lore, that it, it just thank you so much. What a what a pleasure. What oh, you're a- welcome. And we're gonna we're gonna post pictures on Facebook and on Instagram of all these places so everybody can really experience the beauty and the history of these places because they really are quite grand and elaborate. So I think so we want everyone to see that and then kind of get the image of what it might be like to just to see a ghost in one of these elaborate places. Good <laughs> of that. I like it. <laughs> so thanks again. DC. It was great having you on and we want everyone to tune into Hauntingly Yours. And have a listen. Stay safe and stay spooky. Edgar Allan Poe once wrote, The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? Take a journey with me, DC O'Rourke, your personal guide for the paranormal. We will go all around the globe looking for haunted places. We will break down the history and ghostly lore together from within the comforts of wherever you're listening from. We will find the secrets that have been hiding within the walls of these places for so long in my podcast, Hauntly Yours, a podcast for the paranormal where the spirits are always waiting. Available on all listening platforms, please do not forget to review and subscribe.